Peace be with you. You just read uh, John's epilogue, that's what they call it, to his gospel story. In other words, it's, it's John's uh, comments um, to the very end of, of the Jesus story that he's been writing. And John reminds me, um, thank you for standing through that. I know it was long, but it's so good. It's so fascinating, and it's so helpful. And John reminds me in this little epilogue that he writes, he's ending this kind of conclusion that he tags on to the end of the gospel. Um, he reminds me of a passionate, wordy preacher. Like just when you think he's about to wrap it up, you know what I mean? He keeps going. Um, my, my, my dad used to say, some guys just, they sell it and then they buy it back. Um, <laughs> The staff is like, that's you, that's you. Uh, unlike a boring preacher, John, he's not boring with his additional comments, um, what he includes after the resurrection. Um, actually, it's tremendously helpful. It's why I wanted to explore it. It's why I wanted to share it with you today, in case you've never read it, many of you have. Um, but I wanted to, us to explore that on this particular Easter. John 21 is the conclusion that says, here's what happened after Easter. That's what you read. Here's what happened after Easter. John's saying, it's crazy. He raised from the dead. He walked out and he appeared to people. Um, he raised from the dead. And here's what happened next. Here's the thing. Rightfully so. Think about this. And you all know this. Rightfully so. Today is like the Super Bowl Sunday of all Sundays. Right? For church folk, this is it. This is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, but if it's as amazing as we say it is, what do we do after it's over? I mean, you know, like you, you take pictures and then you eat a lunch with your family. What do you do with it when it's over? Essentially, I'm asking, what do you do after Easter? Or what do you do with Easter? I can tell you what church staff across the country do. They, they check attendance records after Easter. And then they slap fives, right? It's like, wow, we were packed. Yeah. Wait till next year. <laughs> right? That's what church staffs do. I read once that churches used to plan huge events and programs for Easter Sunday, and then they stopped. That, that shifted for them because they realized, wait, 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 people come anyway. They're going to pack the house on Easter anyway. So what they did was things evolved over time, and they started planning programs and events for the Sunday following Easter, right, to try to capture the attendance that they had on Easter. This is what we do in the church world and church staff world. As for me, I'm still learning and growing um, as a pastor. And as far, so far in my own life, my attempt to crack this code is really just to not rely on manufacturing enthusiasm and church attenders at all. Um, and the reason is for that is because I've just learned inevitably I'll feel pressured or I'll put pressure on the staff to maintain that enthusiasm in people which will fail to do, of course. And then it just kind of all feels futile. Now, you might be thinking, dude, this guy, this, this is a really cynical sermon for Easter uh, Sunday. There, look, um, bear with me, because what I'm trying to stress this morning to you is that I am very passionate and enthusiastic. I just am enthusiastic about preaching into the ordinary and into the valleys of following Jesus, um, not necessarily the so-called mountaintops 
of it all. I mean, think about it. It's the valleys, or at least the monotonous middle space of your life. Um, that's actually where you live most of your life, and it's actually where you end up building the kind of quality of your life. It's not on the mountaintops that you build out the quality of your life. It's in the everyday. It's in the routine. It's in the mundane. It's in the ordinary. This is where I like to pastor people, and this is where I like to talk to people. This is the space that matters, I think, the most. And so this is why I want to talk today on Easter about life after Easter. You could say, well, that's all good, Matt. That's all well and good, Matt. But why didn't you just choose to talk about what happens after Easter, after Easter, next Sunday? And I'm like, well, that's because 20% of you won't be here next week. And so I figured I would seize the opportunity while you all are here to talk about life after Easter. You know what I mean? That's just where my heart is, and that's me being honest with you. And John 21 is the chapter for anyone who reads the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and says, well, that's kind of crazy and profound. You know, like if you just read it straight through all the way, uh, you know, John's at least version of it and got all the way to the end, and you would say, this is crazy and profound, life-changing, really. It should be. What now? What happens now? You ever said that? Like the day, the first day I woke up after I got married, like after my wedding ceremony, I woke up the next morning, I looked at my wife, she was still sleeping, and I thought, what now? <laughs> I'm not in disgust, <laughs> but like, like I don't, is there a manual for this? Like what do we, I don't, you know what I mean? Or like when I, my, my first child, when I brought her home from the hospital, you know, we like, I remember walking out to the lobby area, like holding her, and the nurse was like, bye. And I was kind of like, I just go home with this? Like, you just let me leave with this? And then like the whole drive, just, you know what I mean? I was just shaking. What now? What now? You know? It's like, no sleep. That's what now. Um, So anyway, these are the things we say. And the resurrection is like that, man. Like, you should be thinking that kind of a way. Like, what now? What happens next? That's normal, by the way totally normal. It's fitting. It's a fitting question. If you take the resurrection seriously, like if it's just like some national holiday, then no, you don't need to ask that. If, it's, if it happened, if it's news and it happened, then that's the question we all should be asking. I mean, if Jesus has risen from the dead, it can't simply mean that we just dress up once a year in a cute outfit and take pictures. It can't. It can't. The resurrection is world-altering. It's the kind of news that if you believe it, you, 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 you end up fashioning your whole life around it, man. You bank your whole life on this thing. So what did the disciples do? Like just, let's, when you look into the story, what'd they do? They went fishing. Did you see that? They went fishing. They were like, four or five of you in this room, diehard fishermen, and you're like, best Easter sermon ever. (laughs) I am polishing the bass boat today. (laughs) Hang on, my comment is a bit tongue-in-cheek, right? So if it's what, but it is what they did. You read the story, right? Like, it's so interesting that they did that when you actually stop and think about it. I'll read it again. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again, right, to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, and Simon Peter 
Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, well, I'm going fishing. And they said to them, well, I guess we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, and they suffered through getting skunked. Right? They flogged the water, or actually they netted the water, and nothing happened for them. Now, really think about this for a moment. These guys have already, we, we skipped over chapter 20, didn't read it. They've already seen the risen Lord. They've seen him. Like the women who were the first evangelists, they've come and told them. They've, they've, they've heard it. They, they, they've seen him. They've talked to him. They've, they've touched him. That's already taken place. It's been over a week, if you follow John's timeline. It's been over a week, and this, this incredible new reality has happened, and where do we find them? Back in their old neighborhood. Just in their old neighborhood. This is, it's Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is up in Galilee. They're in their old neighborhood doing the same job that they had before, fishing. So ordinary. It's so anticlimactic. That's why I picked this for Easter. It's like, this is the most anticlimactic passage for Easter, I know. And I think it's helpful. I think it's incredibly instructive. The resurrection, you see, isn't just something that you believe. It's something that you live. Uh, Pastor Barry was talking about this just a little bit ago. It's not the kind of news that you hear about. You raise your eyebrows and then you just wait to die to get in on it. That's not how the Bible talks about it. Paul says in Colossians 2 that once we believe this Jesus and that he is who he says that he is, the Son of God come down for us, lived perfectly, innocently, amazingly, inspiringly, but then he just, in his innocence, he dies for us, takes on our sin, and gives to us his righteousness. Like, if we believe that, then we get baptized to unite ourselves in his death, it says, Paul talks about in Colossians, so that we might be raised up to new life, just like his. That we're uniting ourselves with him, his death and his resurrection. Now, Paul, when he says this, there's other places in Scripture that talk about this, he's talking about the here and now, like today. But living out this resurrection and faithfully responding to Easter doesn't mean that you leave everything that you know necessarily. And it doesn't mean that you understand it even or understand how to live it quickly or immediately. I mean, to be fair, the, 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 the resurrection, as it gets deeper into you, gets deeper into your bones and your heart, things will inevitably change. You know what I mean? Like, you may be called to change location. You may be called to leave your job at some point through conviction. You, you, you might have to change over time your social circles. Um, you, you, you certainly have to begin a life of learning, you know, because you, you got to read your Bible and these things you just need to, you need to absorb and, and figure out what it means now uh, to be a human um, in light of the resurrection. Um, you certainly need to begin to participate in a, in a deeper way in a local church so that you can be surrounded by These things will happen to you. Uh, but it doesn't require some, what I'm trying to say is, is that living out the resurrection in the day-to-day -day doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to need to go on some pilgrimage. Like you don't need to go to a sweat lodge and have visions. You don't need to join a monastery. Not that necessarily that any of you were planning on doing any of that. 
But we get this idea sometimes that like the ordinary is somehow not spiritual. It can't be further from the truth when you actually look at the story. Not at all. What we see here is the resurrected life for these guys, at least initially, for sure, what we see is it's just ordinary life. They're living ordinary life trying to process these extraordinary realities. I read some people talk about how this scene, this, this moment when these guys went fishing as somehow that was failure on their part, like they were in sin. I don't buy that for one second. Not at all. Jesus never rebukes them for going fishing. And, and, and besides, he's the one who actually told them to go back to their old neighborhood, if you look it up in Matthew. He's the one who said, go, go back to Galilee. Furthermore, after a horrible night of fishing, Jesus decides in good humor, as far as I'm concerned, to give them the catch of a lifetime. I think it was 153 fish or something like that. And I, I don't know why, probably there's speculation around that, probably just to show that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with a kind of listening ear on Jesus. Let him tell you how to do the ordinary thing that you're doing in a new way. My point, though, is this. This is the point I'm trying to make. I think the context clues show Jesus is patiently letting these guys process what life after Easter actually means. He knows that it takes time, and, and, and he keeps revealing himself to him. I mean, Jesus, it's weird, but he's kind of doing this vanishing act, like he's appearing, and then he's vanishing. Appearing, and he's vanishing. It's like this, this, he knows that it takes them time for it to register what does Jesus do? He reveals himself in this, not in some extraordinary place or way. He just shows up on the shore with breakfast. Verse 9, look at it again. He says, it says this, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come. Have breakfast. Look at this now. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Hmm? Really? And Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The fact that John mentions, okay, catch this. The fact that John mentions that none of them dared ask, quote, who are you? He's cluing you in that they had some doubts. That's what he's doing. Go read Matthew 28, verse 17. It also depicts that some of, some of them are having doubting issues. They're looking at him, they're talking to him, but there's something about Jesus that's different and they're struggling with it a little bit. Jesus, or sorry, John tells us that this is the third time that Jesus has revealed himself to these disciples. How many times does it take, guys? How many times does it take for you, I'm not talking to you, but to them, these disciples, how many times did it take for you to see him and talk to him for you to really believe and be changed? Apparently more than once. And do we think we're better? We think that somehow we should just get it right away, immediately. I just think we lose sight of the humanity of it all. I mean, in the end, for sure, like we read Acts 1 and we keep going through our Bibles and we realize, oh, this thing sunk in for them. And then they wrote the New Testament. 
But it didn't happen quickly or immediately for them. They worked it out in their own time. Here's the lesson, the first lesson I'm just trying to say to us with all this. What do you do after Easter? Here's one of the things you need to recognize. You need to recognize that doubts are often commingled with belief. I said it. Doubts are commingled often with belief. We worship and we wonder. We just do. And it would be better for us to start admitting some of that reality. We all need continual revealings of the Lord by his spirit to help us. So what do we do after Easter? I'll tell you what you do after Easter. You go to work tomorrow. You go back to school. You go back to you know, caring for your loved ones, the kids, the, the grandparents, whatever it is. You go back to the thing that you were doing, but you go back into it with a certain kind of intent, an attentiveness to God and his spirit, and you ask, oh, Lord, reveal. Reveal yourself to me in this ordinary space, in this ordinary time, in the thing that I do with my hands, the things that I do right now with my mind. Reveal yourself, and so you pray, and you read, and you serve, and you sacrifice in the normalcy of which you have right now. I don't want you to go to work tomorrow and be like, well, that was, that's over. No, it's the resurrection life is now, but it is lived in the ordinary. Is that it? No, Jesus isn't done, obviously, and here comes the iconic breakfast scene with Peter. So it's verse 15 now. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time. And he said to him, Lord, you, you know everything, and you, and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, this is very important, Peter. I say to you, when, you're, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you get old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John clues us in. And he's talking about the death that he's going to have to endure. It was just over a week that Peter was standing over a charcoal fire, right? While, while Jesus is on trial, right before his crucifixion, and many of you know this, it was Peter, it was cold. It was cold that night, and Peter's standing there warming himself over this charcoal fire. That's what it says in the Greek. And three times, right, he's asked, wait, I recognize you. Aren't you with that guy, Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? And what does Peter do? He denies. Three times over charcoal fire while he's warming himself that he doesn't know Jesus. So with that in your mind, right, John knows that. John wants that in your mind. And he makes sure, therefore, you catch the brilliance of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus strategically places Peter where? over a charcoal fire. And he begins questioning him. 
I can imagine the smells, all, all of it. It just, we use the word trigger a lot these days. Guess who's being triggered? Peter. He's absolutely being triggered. Jesus is activating Peter's memory of failure. He is. That might be uncomfortable for you, but that is 100% what Jesus is doing. And he's not doing it to shame him. He's doing it to mature him. What I'd like you to see is how Jesus changes Peter in his questions, not his lectures. It's a good lesson for all of us parents. Think about better questions before you think about the lecture. Jesus doesn't just ask Peter, or sorry, Jesus doesn't ask Peter at all. How sorry are you, Peter? Peter, how many prayers have you given? How much penance have you paid? Peter, how many prayer meetings, Bible classes have you taken? And what was your Sunday attendance? He doesn't ask those kinds of questions. He just asks simple but vulnerable questions of relationship. Peter, do you love me? Jesus calls him, did you notice this? It's brilliant. Jesus calls him by his full family name. Why the formality, Jesus? Well, why the formality of you, parent, when you call your child by your full name when you're trying to what? Right? When my youngest is having a meltdown, right? When Elizabeth, what does it mean? It means, look at me. Pay attention. I'm trying to tell you something very important. I'm loving them. And so, therefore, Jesus is doing something very similar with Peter. You're my son, and I love you. And what I'm going to tell you is very important, right? Now, this is so awesome, and it's so important. Notice in verse 15... Jesus asks him this, the first time he asks him about love, he says this, if he loves him more than the others, right, than the other disciples, is that appropriate? Wait, so what are you doing, Jesus? Are you trying to make like a JV team and a varsity team? Like, Peter, are you going to be on the varsity Christian team or are you going to be on the JV Christian team? It really depends on how much you love me. Is that what he's doing? Well, bear in mind, if you know the story, bear in mind, it's Peter who had this habit of proclaiming his passion and work ethic high and above other people, didn't he? Back in Matthew 26, 33, it's, uh, you read that little section if you want, it's great, and it's where Jesus is predicting and he's letting them know up front, man, you guys are going to scatter, you're going to have like fickle faith, you're going to struggle with your courage. And you're going to flee and you're going to run. You're going to kind of be cowards. I want you to know that up front. And he's extending the peace to them. And you remember what happened as soon as he told them that? Peter's like, not me. That's what he says. This is what he says. Though they all, these are Peter's words, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, Jesus. They might do that. What's Peter doing? He's basing his Abilities, his strength, his faith, all of this in comparison to other people. They might be losers, Jesus, not this guy. And you get the sense, therefore, in this scene right here, that Jesus 
This isn't an inappropriate question at all. Jesus, this is his way of asking, Peter, are you still gonna live with that sort of naive confidence about yourself? Are you so cocksure, Peter? Are you gonna continue to think of yourself as bigger and better than everybody else, Peter? Are you gonna continue to rely on your own power and your old ways of doing things? Are you gonna keep showing up in the world in that kind of braggadocious way, Peter? Is that gonna be your life moving forward? Three times he asks him to parallel his not so long ago three denials. This is Jesus' way of rewinding and then renewing him. He has him revisit it and then changes him. See, Jesus has Peter face his failures. Not, you know, he has him face the failure so that he might begin to live honestly before him and others and, and so that he can begin to see the person that he is now becoming you see, Peter, when you think it through and you actually read the story, Peter never lacked passion. He lacked integration. You see that. Jesus doesn't want failure to define Peter, just like Jesus doesn't want failure to define your life, but he wants failure to change your life, like make you different. I mean, think about it hypothetically for a second. Imagine Peter who hasn't failed. He's unbearable. You don't want to be in his church. He's going to be angrily yelling in the pulpit that you haven't worked hard enough and that you don't believe enough and you don't have enough faith. I'm perfect. Why can't you be perfect? I don't want to be around that Peter. And Jesus doesn't either. And he doesn't want Peter to live that way. So he has him face his failures. On the other side of that, a humiliated but not restored Peter could have ended up despairing. But, what you see, a Peter who has failed, faced it, been forgiven, and then called to new life is the guy that ends up changing people for God's good glory. It's the invitation and the opportunity every single one of us has. Uh, Parker Palmer once wrote, quote, as the darkness began to descend on me in my early 20s, I thought I had developed a unique and terminal case of failure. I did not realize that I had merely embarked on a journey toward joining the human race. Jesus is helping Peter see that being a failure is being human. Maybe you can receive that today. It's like, welcome, Peter, to the human race. That was Jesus' talk. And it's why we desperately need the death and the resurrection of Jesus to face who we truly are. Without the resurrection, I don't know if you can face your failures. To be honest, maybe you should avoid them. But if, it, if it's true that he's taken my sin and he's nailed it on the cross and said, yep, it's all there, he did that, she did that, yep, 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 and I took the punishment for it, and now, because they trust and they believe in me, they're innocent, you can face it. You absolutely can face it. I read once, can't remember where, it is the way we lose more than the way we win. 
if the gospel is to be believed, that brings the greater glory to God. It's the way you lose. So what do you do after Easter? You learn to face your true self, friends, like who you really have been and still can be at times. Like, face it. We learn to face our losses and our failures. We get nowhere with the resurrection if we try to avoid them or if we live out of this delusional perfectionism, which many of you are giving yourself to. We learn to listen to the word. We listen to the spirit. We listen to our trusted friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and we own the things that, we, that, be, that be get revealed to us. We own them. And we take them to Jesus and say, this is who I have been. Change me. Change me. Show me a new way of being in the world. Show me a new way of showing up. And lastly here, Peter hears the hard news from Jesus that circumstances in his future won't be easy. Um, and he, like many of us, turns his attention from Jesus. And he, what does he do? He turns his attention to other people. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This is John he's talking about. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is this going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about, what about old Johnny over here? What about him? What about, I know what you're saying about me and my life, but what, what's, what's his situation going to be? How will things end up for him, Jesus? And then Jesus just says to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter understandably realizes that there's something entirely unique about the life he's being called to. He gets that. The calling he's received from Jesus is not addressed to everyone, is it? It's addressed just to him. And I'd imagine that he's not thrilled about it and he's kind of nervous. And he looks over to John, who's not far from where they are, and he begins the dreaded thing, that dreaded habit of comparing himself. And maybe Peter, I don't know, is he struggling with insecurity? Maybe. Jealousy? Maybe. We don't know. Either way, he's thinking about how his life stacks up in comparison to his, the other person's life. And Jesus questions this out of him, and he repeats himself. The call of your life, Peter, isn't in comparison. It's in loyalty and listening to me. That's the call of your life. And this is the battle you and I face. There isn't a single story in this room, and I know, I don't know all of you, but I know many of you, there isn't a single story in this room right now that is a carbon copy of anyone else's. Every one of you is unique. You have a unique journey in the faith, you have your own unique failures, just like I do. You have your own unique blessings. You have your own unique gifts. That's the way it works. This is the way God has designed it. And the invitation for us isn't to reject these unique stories. It's to embrace them. Not easy sometimes, but this is the call of our life. This is the way he's designed it. The resurrected life that you live is completely unique to you. Is there overlap? 100%. Absolutely. We've all fallen short. How about that for overlap? 
We've all failed. How about that? Trust me. We've all failed. We all are battling questions and doubts at times, all of us. We all have gifts in some way or another. We all have shadows that chase us. You do, just like I do. But we all have a grace that's sufficient. If you trust it. So what do you do after Easter? Some of you are like, I don't know, I got, I, when I heard fishing, I was done. <laughs> what do you do after Easter? You trust and you follow the one that loves you more than anybody else. The one who died for you and the one that raised from the dead for you. We trust the story that he gives. We trust that he will work it out for your good in the end. We trust that if we follow him, he will never let us down. He, if he has risen from the dead, friends, then he can certainly raise you to new life today, next week, and in the future. No question. And so at this time, we remember the ritual, the practice, the thing he gave us to remember and to proclaim him until he returns. When he was with his friends, these disciples, after the supper, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup of wine after giving thanks. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He shed his blood for us. He took on our sin. He bore our griefs, all of our sorrows. He was pierced. He was cast out, all of it. For me, for you. And so we come up here this morning in a moment to this station and to this station and participate in communion. All the scriptures ask is that you don't do it in an unworthy manner. This is on you in prayer to examine your own life. Repentant love, as I said on Friday night, is what he's asking of us. Repentant love. A love that's honest about all of our failures and looking to him and saying, I need you in my place. I trust you. Help me follow you. The way we do this at the Oaks, you don't have to be a member here. You just have to have an honest, genuine confession. You're working that out in your own life in some way, hopefully in community. You come to that station or that station in a little bit, you can take a piece of the bread. There's juice and there's wine, whichever your conscience permits. I'm so glad you're here. And I hope you take wonderful pictures with your families today. <laughs> And I hope to see you again. But if I don't, you now know what to do after Easter. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. May we, as a church community, learn to trust the story that you're giving. May we learn to see that you will reveal yourself in the ordinary moments. So make us an attentive people. And Father, give us the courage to face who we truly are at times. And though that stings and though that hurts in moments and, mo and, and though sometimes we get afraid of who might uh, leave us or abandon us, we can trust that you won't. You will not. If we are honest before you, you will be steadfast with us in all things.
So we trust that and we give you thanks that you came out of the tomb and that there's new life today, today, not just in the life to come. And so we always pray things in Jesus' name, amen.